Uh, this morning, I want to talk about the truth about true commitment. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn to Luke, the Gospel of Luke. If you uh, are not that familiar with your Bibles, there should be some Bibles around you in the chair in front of you or behind you. You've got two-thirds of it's the Old Testament, one-third is the New Testament. And once you get to the New Testament, there are four Gospels, uh, which are really... Um, not biographies, the life of Jesus when he was here, and you get to the third one, Luke, and turn to the fifth chapter, and that's where we are right now. But the, the truth about commitment, we're, we're in a series in which we are trying to know the truth about Jesus, and that's really the stated purpose of Luke as he writes this story, the good news about Jesus. And as you think about that, there's so many specific things he addresses. And when we get to Luke chapter 5, he, he really hits the idea of what does it mean to, to make a commitment to Christ. Uh, we encourage you each uh, month to hide the Word of God in your heart and your mind by memorizing it. And there's a, a passage in Luke, Luke chapter 9, that kind of speaks to that. And he was saying to them all, which means he wasn't communicating this particular challenge just to a select few uh, so he's saying it to everyone who would hear him or read uh, what he said. He was saying to them all, if anyone wishes to come after me. And, and hopefully, it's just being here, that's, that's part of your agenda. I'm, I'm wondering, no matter where you're on the spiritual journey, do I want to make the step to make a commitment to follow Jesus? So Jesus speaks to that. And he said, if anyone wishes to come after me, this is what's required. Let him deny himself. He must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. So, so we realize to follow Jesus demands a commitment. But usually what is involved in making that commitment? I was reading early this morning a Yahoo News story about two atheistic agnostic parents that were upset because their daughter had made a commitment to embrace Christianity. And they went on to, to say why they were horrified by their, her commitment. And, and part of it, they, they shared some stories about how they thought it, this commitment didn't make their daughter better, but, but worse. Uh, and I'm not sure that was somewhat a spin. But if we make a true commitment to the God who created life, made us in his image, it's going to make us a better person because it, it, it should mirror who Jesus is. But many people make a profession of following Jesus, but it's really not a commitment. So what's involved in making a commitment, a true commitment to Jesus? Well, hopefully this passage will, will kind of open up some of the things that are involved in, in making that so crucial, important step in life. What, what does it may, mean to make a true commitment? I want to begin this way by simply saying this, it, it usually takes some amount of time. Now, I would dare say those of you who are married today, uh, probably the first moment you saw the person who is now your spouse, uh, you didn't make that commitment at that microsecond to make that your life partner. Uh, some, there is that love at first sight, but but usually when that second sight comes, you begin to wonder, is that first sight really real? You know? <laughs> and and so, so most of us, when we made that commitment to that person who is now our spouse, it, it, there was an amount of time to make sure that either that initial thought is a true, uh, wise uh, decision, uh, or should we make a, a, a second look at that person that, that somehow we were attracted to. 
you know, infatuation lasts about a year and a half at max, but if you're going to make a life commitment to someone, it could, it's your entire life. And so you better make a wise decision. And if that's true about your life partner, how so much more important it is to make sure that commitment to the person you're saying is the God of this universe that demands for you to make him Lord as well as Savior, that this is the right decision. So we need to understand it usually takes some time. Not always. Sometimes there was that instant commitment that people made to Jesus. When Jesus encountered the person who was blind and gave him sight, there was a commitment there. I once was blind, but now I see. And when they were paralytics, they were healed instantaneously by Jesus. They, they used to not be able to walk, and now they could walk. And, and so they were, they were right prepared to make that full commitment to Jesus. But unless Jesus does something miraculous in your life at the moment you encounter him, uh, usually it takes some time. And the reason I say that is, as you are concerned about people in your relational world, uh, don't, don't be surprised that they don't instantaneously commit your, their life to Jesus just as you have now made your commitment to Jesus. And it might take more than just a few days or weeks or months. It, it could be years. Here, I want you to see this in the text. Luke chapter 5. It begins this way, and now it happened that while the crowd was pressing around him and listening to the word of God. Now, preachers like to do this kind of thing. They like to build a whole message on three words, now it happened. Now, the reality is, what's the context of the now? It's the distance between Luke chapter 4 and Luke chapter 5, and there's an encounter that Jesus has with some people that he calls them to true commitment, but what was the space between Luke chapter 4 and Luke chapter 5? Or, or really, what was the context of, of this opportunity that Jesus called men to make a radical commitment to him? And when you first read this, you might be thinking, well, it was an instantaneous commitment. But there had been some time that people had seen Jesus. You know, there's, a, there's a man named Bart uh, Earlman, and he makes a, a statement that everything we believe about Jesus in the, in the New Testament is not true because if you read it carefully, you realize that they contradict themselves. The four Gospels do. And, and you need to realize that each of the four Gospels look at Jesus from a slightly different perspective, and, and they aren't necessarily chronological. And sometimes when you read the text, you're thinking it would all happen, you know, A, B, C, D, E, and F. But the reality, if you, if you harmonize the Gospels, you see there's some time gaps between times where Jesus encountered people and he called them to radical commitment. And really, for many of the ones that he talked to on this particular time at a lake in, in Israel, they had encountered Jesus for about a year. And some of them maybe even longer because of relationships they had with the family. We know Jesus was born, the virgin birth, and that kind of created a stir from those who heard the miraculous uh, angelic stories and the shepherds encountering this magnificent person and the wise men that had come. And, and some had maybe heard the, the scuttlebutt about Jesus going to the temple and confounding all the, the greatest minds of that day. Some had seen and heard uh, the baptism of Jesus where all of a sudden there was a voice out of heaven and a dove descending upon him. And all of a sudden, the, 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 the demonstration that he was more than just a, a follower of John the disciple, but he was the one who was superior to John the disciple, John the Baptist. And then actually what you have here 
you have Peter, James, and John, and, and they had encountered Jesus a number of times. If you go to the Gospel of John, you see Andrew, the brother of Peter, uh, finding out about Jesus. Uh, Peter was in his oikos, his relational world, and, he, and Andrew brought Peter to see Jesus. There was another time in Matthew chapter 4 in which you have Jesus in a similar occasion seeing these men fishing, and he says, follow me, and I'll make you fishers of men. But if you read the account carefully, he's not talking about the same event. He's talking about a a previous event. And, And let me tell you, I would probably say the vast, vast majority, if not all of you, you didn't become a follower of Jesus the first time you heard the message about Jesus. You had to hear it over and over and over again. And quite frankly, even the 12 had heard the message about Jesus numerous times. And not only heard the message, but seen the miraculous. And yet they weren't totally convinced yet. There was something missing about the identity of this one. Maybe he was just simply a miracle worker from God who spoke rather powerfully, but But now they were about to make the connection. And so I wanted to tell you, as you think about your own life, and maybe it's been a significant period of time when you heard about Jesus. And maybe you're thinking, maybe it's just too late. It usually takes some time for people to make a true commitment to Jesus Christ. Where they're not just caught up in the emotion, but it's their mind as well as their heart, and even their hands are willing to live it out and saying, this is the one I'm committing my entire life to. Now, it happened. Actually, Alice has been sharing some recent events with someone that lives on our block that we've been sharing the gospel with for over a decade. And it's coming to that time where it appears he's getting closer and closer to crossing the line. And I have to admit, I'm I'm not any more spiritual than than most of you here. There came a time where I began to doubt, is it possible he's going to make this step? But now I can see some glimpses that he's getting closer. What's true about a true commitment? It usually takes some time. I put in your outline just the record, probably the first year of Jesus' ministry that brings us up to this point when he calls people to a radical commitment. What does it take to make a true commitment? Number one, it usually takes some time. It also requires hearing the word of God. Now, I've already read that particular part of the text, but let, let's read verses 5, 1 through 3. Now it happened while the crowd was pressing around him and listening to the what? The word of God, he, referring to Jesus, was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, and he saw two boats lying at the edge of the lake. But the fishermen had gotten out of them and were washing their nets. And he got into one of the boats, which was Simon's, and asked him to put out a little way from the land. And he sat down and began teaching the people from the boat. This is what's considered a narrative part of the New Testament. I mean, in, in other words, it's, it's telling the story about a true event. This is something in the life of Jesus. And what you have is you have a crowd coming around to hear Jesus. He was, he was uh, a compelling 
figure. He was one that, that people wanted to hear, and the, had, the word had spread out that you've got to hear this, this man who, who was from Nazareth, which is surprising to us because really nothing good comes out of Nazareth. But when he speaks, it's like Ephah, and everyone does what? Listen. And it says that when they heard him, they were listening to the word of God. Now, I've said to many of you in a small group or probably in settings like this as well, that, that really, when I'm not reading the Word of God, you know, I am not giving you anything that's inspired. The Word of God is inspired. What, what my goal is to take the Word of God and, and help you understand it, apply it, apply it, seeing the implications of it, uh, to follow the one who is the author of this. But the Word of God is what is inspired. So I never really give the Word of God out unless I read it. But the unique thing about Jesus is, when he spoke, what did he speak? He spoke spoke the words of God. And and why did he speak the words of God? Because he was God. What what a unique experience to, to hear someone that every time he spoke, it was the word of God. Now, I would venture to say that would cause everyone to listen. There's something unique about what he communicates and how he communicates and what he's saying that goes from the head to the heart. And it, it, it kind of provokes me to use my hands to live it out. Everything he said was the word of God. In fact, that's what was described of him by those who heard him. They were amazed at the authority of his teaching. And that wasn't because he, he pounded a pulpit, if there was a pulpit he was using, a, a stand. It wasn't because of the, the volume in his voice. Or the quality of his voice. It was the content of what he said. And because of that, people, people were moved to come to hear him. It is said of in the area of Galilee at that time, there's probably three million people that lived in that area. It's kind of the place that we're seeing in this particular event in the life of Jesus. So he could have brought a pretty big crowd to hear him. And it says that he was going to speak this message at the lake of Gennesaret. Now, sometimes when you read God's Word, you'll get a little bit confused because there are different names for different things that were true of that day. The Lake of Gennesaret is probably more popularly known as the Sea of Galilee. John would speak of uh, the Sea of Tiberias. In the Old Testament, they would call it the Chinnereth. And really, it was the same body of water, just by different names. And sometimes what they would do, they would name the body of water based on the area around it. Again, Assyriat is the fertile land on the north side of the lake, and so sometimes they would refer to it that way. And sometimes you think, well, why do they call it a sea sometimes and a lake other times? Well, sometimes they call it a sea because it was a pretty large body of water, at least in their mind. It was 13 miles long, 7 miles wide. And interesting enough, it was 700 feet below the sea level. And another body of water that many of you are familiar with, where did it get its water? Well, it got its water from the Jordan River. And it got, the Jordan River was fed by a mountain, uh, 9,200 feet high, Mount Hermon, and in various ways it fed into that particular sea or lake. And as Jesus got ready to speak, he recognized the crowd was pretty big, so, so what did he do? There was no particularly mound or elevated land right at that place for him to, to get up on top of so people could hear and see him. So he saw two boats, and these weren't little dinghies. They were fishing boats, and he got in one, and sovereignly of the two boats, he picked the one that Simon, 
whom we know more familiar as Peter, that said, Peter, I want to get in your boat and get out of a ways, and I want to speak to the crowd. Now, I don't know a whole lot about acoustics, but some say if you have a body of water here, what the body of water will do will, will enhance the acoustics. It will kind of bounce off and allow people to hear. Uh, also, it's interesting that, that when he spoke, it, it says that he, he got ready to speak and, and he sat down. And I don't know if he sat down in a place that was somewhat elevated on the boat. But, you know, we have, we have kind of got the tradition all wrong. When in most churches, when you come hear someone preach, you sit, da- uh, you sit down and they what? I think we ought to change that, okay? <laughs> you guys need to stand up the whole sermon and I'll sit down. But whatever it was, that was simply the tradition of the rabbis. But what was compelling to them is they were hearing a man that wasn't like other men. Or let's call it like other teachers, rabbis, which is simply the word for teacher. See, other rabbis, when they spoke, and even preachers today to a certain degree, when, when we preach often, we, we will, we're obviously we're quoting the Scripture because we realize the authority comes from the Scripture. But when Jesus spoke, he didn't have to quote other rabbis. You've heard it said from so-and-so and so-and-so and so-and-so. He would just speak from the authority of his own words. And really, when you think about what, what, what is required for someone to make a true commitment to Jesus Christ, it's got to be coming from someone's response to God's words. See, our words can't convince anybody, but God's words can because they speak to the heart. In Romans 10, 17, I have that in your outline. So faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. So when we communicate the gospel, that's one of the reasons I I try to encourage you to memorize God's word. And you can pick any verses in the scripture you want uh, beyond Jesus wept. Okay, you got to go a little beyond that. But but memorize the word of God so that when you speak about God, you use God's words. You know, whether it's John 3, 16, John you know, 112 or John 5, 24, Romans 3, 23, Romans 6, 23, Romans 10, 7, whatever it might be, use the word of God because it will penetrate people's hearts. The Bible says this about itself in Hebrews 4, 12, for the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. You say, well, why would I use the Word of God? People don't believe the Word of God. Use the Word of God. Because the Word of God has power beyond even their initial disbelief of its authority. There's something miraculous about God's Word because it, it does what it says it does. It speaks to the heart. So what is required in making a true commitment? It, it usually takes some time, and so give yourself the time, but also give the people you're talking to time, but realize there is a sense of urgency. Secondly, use the Word of God. Thirdly, it demands being convinced of the absolute power and knowledge of God. Look at the next part of this account in the life of Jesus. Verse 5, or verse 4, excuse me. Uh, Jesus was on the boat, sat down, began preaching, and then verse 4, when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep water and let down your nets for a catch. 
And now the response now, and if you're familiar with this story, you're probably guessing what it is or you remember what it is. Sometimes when Jesus said to do some things, it was not, it was not <laughs> what someone was expecting. And this was particularly true at this time. And, and Simon tries to argue a little gently. He says, Simon answered and said, Master. And, and this, there's, there are going to be two words here for Master and Lord. This one is a term of respect. It's not the elevated uh, word in the original language meaning Lord or God. He says, Master, leader, we worked hard all night and caught nothing. But I will do as you say and let down the nets. So he, he kind of throws that first line in to see if possibly... Jesus would change his mind, you know, master, you know, and, and, and there's a number of reasons why he was willing to submit to his will. You know, he had just, before now it happened, had happened, he had gone to his mother-in-law's home and he had healed her. In the latter part of Luke chapter 4, it says that everyone who had diseases that came to Jesus, he healed them, and those who were demon possessed he delivered them from possession, and and so he, he had seen the miraculous in Jesus, and yet there was, a, there was a doubt in his mind. Okay, Jesus, I know you're a great teacher, so you, you know, you're a pastor type, preacher type, and I know your day job is being a carpenter, but I want you to know I'm a, I'm a fisherman. And you as a carpenter, preacher, are telling me, a fisherman, what to do. And, and in case you didn't notice, we have just been fishing all night. And the Sea of Galilee, or the, the Sea of Tiberias, or Chinneroth, or Lake, or Sea of Lake Gennesaret, that's the best time to fish here, is at night. And, and what we do is we mend the nets during the day, and we fish at night. Now, now you're telling me to, to go out when I'm beat tired, and go out one more time to throw out the nets? They're gone right now. They're not there. But, but since I respect you, I, I'll, I will do it unless you're, unless you're willing to change your mind at the moment. And when they had done this, verse 6, they enclosed a great quantity of fish, and their nets began to break. So they signaled their partners in the other boat for them to come and help them, and they came and filled both of the boats so that they began to sink. All of a sudden now, Jesus was encountering Peter and all those who were near, and particularly the inner circle, which would become the inner circle, James and John. He said, look, I'm going to speak in your life one more time, definitively, before I call you to full, true commitment. I'm going to invade your world, the industry of fishing, and let you know that I know more than you do. And not only do I know more than you, I'm more powerful than all the techniques you do, you use to encounter fish in your net, into your boat. I'll take the worst of times in the places you've just fished, and I'll bring them into your net. And I'll bring you a quantity so overwhelming that you can't bring your catch in. You'll have to bring out the other boat, and you'll get the fish in the boat, and it'll be so overwhelming, your, your boat begins to sink, now, I dare say, as, as Peter was called to commitment, he, he became convinced of the power and knowledge of Jesus, who had to be more than a man, but he had to be God because he controls nature. 
You know, sometimes, sometimes it will, sometimes it will, but sometimes when you're out and you're seeing the beauty of, of creation, people say, isn't nature so beautiful? And I said, no, nature isn't beautiful. God is, and he created this. Jesus was taking this fish. He knew where they were, and then they had, he had the power to get them in the nets. And this was going to overwhelm Peter. Because Jesus not only knows, can enter into the depths of the sea, he can enter into the depths of someone's heart. He not only can get into your boat, he can get into your life. At that point, Peter was being prepared to make a true commitment because he was convinced of the, the power and knowledge of God. In Romans 1.16, we have these words, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the what? power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. There are those who look at their own lives, and maybe, maybe some of you here this morning are struggling with that, and you're looking at, <laughs> number one, why would God want me? And then secondly, if he did want me, what, what could he do with me? I have really nothing to offer. I have messed up so many times. And, and that's true not only before you become a Christian, but even after you become a Christian, you say, what's, what's the use? Why be faithful to the, the commitment I believe was true, but I, I have so much difficulty living it out? And, and at that point, we need to realize that, that God, God knows when we struggle. God knows when we mess up. He's not surprised by our failures or our successes. And yet he still loves us. The idea of saving is the idea of delivering, and it's an ongoing process. It's a place when you come to know Christ, the penalty of your sins are forgiven, but you begin progressively experience the power over your sins, the things that, that mess you up, and, and God's not surprised. And a true commitment, an ongoing true commitment is you're convinced that God knows you and he still loves you, and God is powerful enough to deliver you and continue to, to change your life. And someone asked me this yesterday, um, are you getting more patient the older you get? And I didn't know how to answer that question, you know. <laughs> but, but all I know is that, that God is progressively making me more patient because God is powerful. But, but also there's another aspect. Not only does he know, uh, is powerful enough to deliver us and he knows all things, he, he really does know what's in our heart. In John chapter 2, after Jesus did the miraculous, he, had, he did his first miracle, turned the water into wine, then he also went to the temple and just miraculously took out all the, the money changers. And, and because he'd done the miraculous, it said that many were believing in him, and yet he said, I did not entrust my heart to them because I know what's in the heart of man. He, he knows when we make a commitment that's not true. He knows that, that if we simply believe that he is the miraculous, he has a powerful teacher, he is a powerful teacher, but that's it. A true faith is, is trusting him as your Lord and Savior, that, that he's going to lead your life as well as save your life, and he knows. He knows all. So what does it require to make a true commitment? It usually takes some time. It always requires hearing the word of God. Thirdly, it demands being convinced of the absolute power and knowledge of God. And then fourthly, it requires understanding the holiness of God. And often we leave this out, which is interesting even in this particular 
text, we, we, we find Peter seeing this in, in, in the most unusual setting. I mean, this was a fishing miracle. What has this got to do with the holiness of God? Look at verse 7 through 9. So they signaled their partners to the other boat for them to help them, and, and the fish was so great that the boats began to sink. Verse 8, but when Simon Peter saw that, he fell down at Jesus' feet, saying, go away from me, for I am a, what kind of a man? A sinful man. For amazement had seized him and all his companions because of the catch of the fish which they had taken. Now, that's kind of an unusual reaction, isn't it? You know, you know, I, I fish, but I wouldn't call myself a fisherman. It's like I golf, but I wouldn't call myself a golfer. You know, I get surprised when I catch a fish because I'm just throwing it in there and hoping, you know, they're going to bite whatever I put out there. And I get excited when I catch a fish. And I would have thought he simply would have been just enthusiastic. Man, this is, this is awesome. Look at, we've got enough fish to feed our families and now sell in the marketplaces. We're doing pretty well right now. But that was not his reaction. It wasn't enthusiasm. It was a sense of, I am in the presence of someone that is so much better than me, so much greater than me, so much more powerful than me, so much who knows all things, and I just feel so, so overwhelmed by his presence. And he described himself as he really was a sinful man. No one makes a true commitment to Jesus Christ until they realize how far they are away from God. And we need to realize that has nothing to do with comparatively how moral or ethical you are to compare to someone else on this planet. It means in the presence of Jesus, you are, I am, we are so far from his standard that apart from him reaching down and, and bridging that gap, which was done on the cross, all of us would be rightfully judged for our sin. Christians ought to be the humblest people on the entire planet because we realize no, no matter how good we are in our own eyes or other people's eyes, it's, it's not enough because Jesus is holy. And the word means set apart. He's so... Up, Far from us, he's reached down to us that we would be guilty for eternity facing his judgment apart from his grace and mercy. And Peter got that on a fishing trip. And the question for all of us, have we encountered that? Where we realize God's grace is so overwhelming his holiness and our sinfulness demands for him to be the Savior that we desperately need to make a true commitment to. Isaiah, in the presentation of God before him, the angels cried out to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Whenever we're amazed by anything in creation, it ought to speak to God's holiness. And we come to the point where we recognize that apart from Jesus, we are guilty in our sin. And really, that's what the communion table reminds us of. His body, the bread, broken for us. The cup, his blood, was spilled out for us so that we could be forgiven.
And then finally, what, is it, uh, what does it take to make a true commitment to Jesus Christ? It will result in a changed life. It will result in a changed life. And this is what we have in the last words of this event in the life of Jesus and what would become his closest companions. Verse 10, and, and so also were James and John, son of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon or Peter, do not fear. From now on you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to the land, they, had, they left everything and followed him. See, when they encountered Jesus, when they made a true commitment, it changed everything. Now, now the, the changing of vocations that, that Peter, James, and John, and the other experience are, is not for everyone that followed Jesus. And we looked at last week in Mark chapter 5, the one who was demon-possessed, and Jesus freed him. He wanted to go with Jesus. He said, I want to do this full time. I want this to be my job. And Jesus said, no, go back to where you live, to your school, to your neighborhood, to your workplace, to people in your relational world, and, and you be full time as a Christian. Whatever job you have, do it there. But in the sense of what they called Peter, James, and John, and the other disciples for is, is, is symbolic for all of us. That when we, when we come to Jesus, we leave everything in the sense of, of anything else in our life that's more important than him. And, and so wherever we are, we want to be marked as, I'm, I'm a Christian missionary wherever I am. I'm a Christian minister wherever I am. I, I make my living doing whatever I do, but I want to represent Jesus and doing my job well and then living the life in such a way that people see who God is as I live it out. And, and then I, I look for the opportunities to speak for God. In that sense, Peter no longer identified himself as a fisherman, but one who was going to fish for men. And that's what we're all to do. We're all simply to live the life and the work and the places God places us and say, now I just want to live in such a way that I reveal God to other people and how I live and how I speak and they can see Jesus in me. And whatever I do, I do well for his glory, not for my own. And in that sense, I'm no longer living for self because I've left that. And now I'm living for him. Well, what's the so what this morning? And this is almost another message, but I will, I will resist the temptation, trust me. You know, really, as we're thinking about the truth, uh, a number of Sundays I've, I've tried to break it down this. You know, there's a truth for our heart and our, our head and our hands. And, and there's a verse that almost summarizes this this emphasis on what does it make to, make to be a true commitment and how do you help other people make a true commitment. It's found in 1 Peter 3.15. But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. And there's so much you could say about this passage, but let me just break it down this way. What, what does it mean to, to really understand what is a true commitment uh, to the one who is true? It means you've come to a place in your heart that you're, you're willing to be submissive. That's what it means to sanctify Christ as Lord. It means I, I set a place in, the, in the, who I really am 
that I don't any longer want to be in charge. I want him to be in charge. Sanctify, set him apart as the one who calls the shots. You know, not your pastor, not your church, but Christ is Lord of your life. Secondly, for your head, be diligent. It says, uh, get to the point you, you, where you can make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you. And the idea of diligence there is, uh, can you explain your faith to other people? And, and you don't have to go to Bible school or seminary to do that. Can you just take what you've experienced and what the truth of the Word of God says about Jesus and in the simplest of ways, communicate that to other people? And then if they question you about it, can you give a reason why you believe that? Whether it convinces them or not, can you give a reason why you believe that Jesus is who he claimed to be? And, and we have to be diligent about that and review why that is. Bring back to memory why we have made a true commitment to the one who is true. And then the hands. He says, always being ready. You know, every day we ought to wake up and say, Lord, I'm ready to be used by you. I'm amazed that sometimes where I'm not ready, and, I, and, I'll, and I'll miss an opportunity. You know, I wasn't ready. The reason I missed it is I wasn't ready to, to speak a word about Christ. But when I am ready, it's amazing how many more opportunities I get. Does that make sense? So this is my challenge for all of us. Let's, let's be a people marked by being submissive, being diligent, and ready help people make a true commitment to Jesus Christ. Let's pray.